Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I believe it's page 980 on the blue, on the blue hymn or uh, pew Bible. Page 980, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Hear now the word of our God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for this word. We thank you that you have preserved your word over time for us. We thank you that you provide all of yourself in this word, that you reveal yourself sufficiently to us there. Lord, we ask for your spirit this morning to work with your word to change us. Uh, We pray that you would uh, enliven our hearts. We pray that you would give us a a greater understanding of this passage and that it would result in our uh, love and concern uh, for others and uh, ultimately for the advancement of the gospel and of your kingdom, both in our own lives uh, and in the world even. We thank you again. We pray uh, your blessing over this time. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as you recall... Darwin has been uh, preaching through a series on believing God and outreach. And the specific text he's been working from is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Very familiar text, but one of the great things that he's pointed out from that passage is that first phrase that Jesus gives us in verse 18. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And really emphasizing that, I mean, we talk a lot about go, therefore make disciples baptizing them and, and, and with that aspect of the verse. But we don't often think about the authority with which we're sent. The authority that God has. And, and Darwin has fleshed out some of those, uh, some of those implications. Uh, one that's going to apply in this passage here is that Christ's authority cannot be stopped in this regard. He has the authority to convert whomever He will. There's nothing that can stand in his way. No government, uh, no person, not not even uh, believers maybe who are hesitant to uh, proclaim his word. Nothing can stop him in in accomplishing his purposes. And we'll see here, even in this passage, that not even Paul's imprisonment is going to stop the advancement of the gospel. And so it it, it ties together in that regard that we're going to look really at an aspect 
of God's authority, of the authority that Christ possesses, and what that means for our outreach, what it means for loving our neighbors. Well, in Paul's letter to the Philippians here, we've got this excellent example of the gospel going forth in a situation that really seems almost impossible. I mean, we would think that that there's no way the gospel is going to continue to advance here. So what I want to do is I want to look at this passage under three main headings. The first is the advancement of the gospel both inside and outside the prison. And that really is dealing with uh, verses 12 through 14 there. And then secondly, we'll look at the preaching of the gospel, I'm sorry, the advancement of the gospel despite false motives. And that's that second part, 15 through 18, which is an odd passage and something that we probably want to talk about. And then finally, uh, as the application and what this really means for us, is I want to think about the advancement of the gospel in our own spheres of influence. Now, that might be kind of a new term or weird term, but we'll talk more about it. Our spheres of influence in our own lives. What does it look like for the gospel to be advancing? So that's where we're going this morning. But, but first, to get an idea of the context of this passage is crucial because it doesn't make any sense otherwise here. And we'll see that why that is in a second here. Paul's writing to the Philippians from a Roman prison. This is one of his uh, prison epistles here. And we have to keep this in mind as we read this passage. And the reason we need to do that is because if we don't remember that, we're not going to be able to tell by his tone. His tone throughout is one of joy. You would never think that this guy is in prison, except for maybe the few times that he actually mentions it. So he actually makes reference to joy or his rejoicing over 16 times in just these four little chapters. This isn't a very long book, so this letter is dripping with joy. And so our tendency would be to think that maybe he's in a good situation by our standards, when in fact that's really not the case. We cannot forget that he's in that terrible situation. I mean, he's literally in prison here, literally chained up. And I think that's really worth thinking a little bit about here. Here's a guy who's in prison, and he's acting like things really aren't that bad. I mean, we wouldn't know it, like we said, from reading the text. He's not stoic in his approach to suffering here, though. And we'd want to ask, where does his joy come from in such a terrible situation? What is it that's driving him in this situation? How can he rejoice? How can he talk about joy so often when he's chained up in prison here? Well, and the answer, of course, is Christ. It's in the gospel. And that's what we'll see here in this passage. Paul shows us here what it means to be joyful in the midst of serious persecution. And again, this isn't just a false hope where Paul's trying to ignore his surroundings or just act as though, well, this isn't really that bad things could be worse. It's not that sort of attitude here. And in the same way, we need to be honest about our own suffering too, our own difficult situations, our own persecution that we may face. Paul recognizes here the gravity of his circumstances, that there was a distinct possibility that he may not get out of prison. He says later he's confident that he will be delivered, uh, but also talks about the genuine possibility of death here too. So he's recognizing sin for what it is here. He's not acting as though nothing's wrong. Sin is sin. We live in a fallen world and we we can't deny that. We need to recognize that in our difficult circumstances. But, and here's the big point for us, Paul gives us direction here as to what hope and even meaning and purpose really look like in a time where by human standards there are none. 
He had nothing. He owned nothing. And he was in prison. So this is, this is the way to respond to adversity. Well, what we must understand here to think rightly about this passage is not only that Paul is in prison, but that he's in prison by the sovereign placement of the Lord. Okay, this will become real important later on here. That he's in prison because the Lord put him there. It's not as though he was outside of God's control and that that's how he ended up in some random uh, chance event that put him there. So God was in complete control of his situation here. God sovereignly placed him there. And, and this is really where we could say Paul's sphere of influence, that term I just used, is the jail. And that's really all I mean by that term. That our sphere of influence is the place where God has sovereignly placed you. And Paul took this opportunity, and pretty much just as he did his entire life, for the advancement of the gospel. And that's really how he viewed his imprisonment, too, as an opportunity. And I think there's a, there's a whole lot that we could learn from that, too. I think rarely would we think of a situation like this as an opportunity. Again, we'll deal with that in a bit. And now the Philippians here, to whom he's writing, would easily assume, and we, we catch that from this passage, they'd easily assume that Paul's imprisonment is going to mean that his ministry is going to cease. This is a guy who's been out going city to city. He's planting churches in all the major towns. He's never really staying in one place for that long. So he's out, he's out living his life, preaching the gospel and all that he does. And so it's, it's pretty natural there that the Philippians are going to be concerned that his ministry would cease. So they have that concern on one level there, that we're not sure what's going to happen here. This is Paul, kind of the lead apostle leading the charge here. And they're thinking, what's going to happen to this new thing called Christianity here? And secondly, they're probably a little concerned for his well-being. Again, they're not sure what's going to happen. Paul's confident later on that he'll be delivered. But at the beginning here, you think that those reading the letter may not be that confident. They could be very concerned. And again, we see with this element of joy in the letter, he was very affectionate with the Philippian church. They had a, a tremendous relationship. So to calm those fears that no doubt the Philippians had, he immediately comes out and says there in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So outright, he wants them to know that God is bringing about blessing from his affliction. So Paul's determined here to let nothing, not even his imprisonment, to stand in the way of the advance of the gospel. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says about it. Paul knew that God invariably means to bring new blessings out of the trials and difficulties his servants experience. And that should really change the way that we think about our adversity, about circumstances in which things happen uh, that we would not plan or intend or hope for. And, and I think, I don't know, you guys may feel the same way that I do about this, but my tendency is to become consumed with the situation, I mean, which is ultimately selfishness, to be consumed with the situation, and then maybe if I move beyond that, it's just a concern to get out of the situation. What can I do to get back to the comfortable way of life that I myself desire? And I probably, I mean, I hate to say, but I'm not thinking in those situations, how can I proclaim Christ in this situation? How can I proclaim Christ in this adverse situation, in this suffering. But what we see here in Paul 
is something radically different from that. He's asking the question and he's answering it. How can I seek to bring glory to Christ in this situation? How can I continue to exalt Christ in my imprisonment? How can I continue to advance the Gospel in a new way here with my changed and difficult circumstance? And that's a radical change in perspective. For all of us to embrace something like that, it's it's not a small task. That's a huge change in perspective to move away from ourselves in difficult situations to thinking in terms of what would the Lord have me do here? How could I exalt the risen Christ in this situation? Well, Paul gives three specific ways here uh, as to how his imprisonment actually resulted in the advance of, of the gospel. He mentions three different People groups, I guess we could call them. First there, if you look back to the text in in verse 13, he says that the gospel advanced in the imperial guard. And what that means is that these were the actual guards that were uh, were staying with Paul. They were his personal guards that were with him all the time in the prison. And think about how this this will come about. This was uh, interesting to me. This is a guy who's in prison. These are his captors here. And in that moment, he's still seeking to actively love them. I mean, he's building some sort of relationship with them at at the least. And they're watching him. They're watching the way he lives his life. They're watching the way he handles this imprisonment. And they're changed by it. The gospel then begins to advance among those people there. So first, the imperial guard. Secondly, this is also in verse 13 there. It says, the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. And most commentators think that what that probably means is that it it advances out to the greater Roman society. At the very least, it moves out beyond the prison into into the palace area. So, again, we could think about this. Paul's in prison here. He's having such an effect, or I should say the Lord's having such an effect on these these guards uh, by Paul's testimony, by the way he's living his life here, that a couple things have to happen here. One, the guards have to be out talking about it. Word is getting out about the way this guy is handling his imprisonment. So we see that there's almost this chain of events that happens here just by Paul being faithful in the little things in his very limited context, just a few people around him. The gospel is going forth and is taking hold well beyond probably what most people would have thought could have happened. And then finally there, the, the third group, we see the gospel advance in the encouragement of the brothers there in verse 14. Most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now we should ask, why would that be the case? How are they going to be encouraged by our leader here who's now in prison? How is this going to help us to speak more boldly and to speak without fear? Well, again, we're talking about first century Rome here. Christians are still in the minority. I mean, this is, Christianity is very new. And so at, at this point, it was pretty easy for believers in the first century to be pretty timid about expressing their faith. I mean, you're saying something radical there. When you're, you're trusting Christ, believing in Jesus, ultimately what you're doing is you're saying Caesar is not God here. Caesar is not king of all. So you're making a radical statement there. Uh, in, in being a believer, it was much more difficult to be a believer in that regard uh, than it is for us living where we do in this age. But they then begin to hear of Paul's imprisonment, the advancement of the gospel that's taken place in this persecution 
they're encouraged by it. They're encouraged to speak without fear. They're encouraged to speak in a bold way about the Lord Jesus. So Paul is seeing here that that his response to his circumstances is having real effects outside of the prison. In a way that, who knows if he, he would have expected that, but certainly the Philippians here would not have thought that this was the case. And it's interesting the way that Paul describes what specifically these three groups noticed of his imprisonment. He says it specifically there in verse 13. It says, It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And that's an interesting way of saying that there, that Paul was living his life, limited as it would have been just in prison there, in such a way that those around him, particularly those guards and those immediately outside of the prison, saw Christ. He was living in a way that exemplified Christ, that exalted Christ, that made Christ known. And so they saw the result of what it looks like when a heart has been changed by the gospel. When a heart has been changed and transformed by God, this is what happens. You live this way. And so that's what they're starting to say. And you can think about that again for our own lives. The testimony and the power of a changed life. You know, apologetics and thinking in terms of defending the faith is, is necessary, is absolutely necessary. And we should, we should be able to give a reason for the hope that is in us. But the testimony and power of a changed life may speak even beyond that. That's something for us to think about, too. The way we live our lives can have tremendous impact on those around us. Well, this is also the point where we can see Christ's authority that we spoke of at the beginning in action. This is his authority to save here. Christ is using Paul's terrible situation as a means to draw his sheep into his flock. Again, we would probably think in prison, it's not going to happen the way it was before. But actually, the opposite is true. God is calling people to himself in these adverse situations here. And really... Uh, And this is very important. What Paul was doing was probably pretty simple. I mean, there's not a whole lot that he could have been doing in prison. He's living faithfully to his calling. He's living faithfully in the little things. I mean, he's an apostle, so he has a unique calling. I mean, in in that he's a representative of Christ, speaking his word. He's tasked with evangelism, planning churches. Um, And it was, of course, in a land that was hostile to the gospel. But it really, it was simple what he was doing there. He, he was reaching out and loving those people around him in that context. He remained faithful to his calling to the best of his degree there. Now, obviously, our individual callings are different than that. We're, we're not apostles. We're not, we don't have that same calling. Um, it remains true, though, for us that in whatever place the Lord has called us, we're to live in such a way that those around us know that our, our work, and you could fill in the blank here, our work, our studying, our spending time with our families, our, our time with our, at our kids' baseball games, that all of those things are for Christ. That our lives would so reflect Christ that that would be evident in every little thing that we would do. And, and we'll talk about that a little bit more and what that looks like here at the end. But, but that's what we need to keep in mind here of what Paul's doing. This isn't something that's so complex that's beyond us to do. These are, these are small, small things living faithfully 
in the situation in which God has sovereignly placed him. Well, so Paul speaks of the gospel advancing both inside and outside the walls of the prison here, just by his own life that he's living here. But he moves on in verses 15 through 18 to deal with a group of people who are preaching Christ, but with false motives. And this is I think this is a pretty tough passage. Um, Let's look back at it here at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in prison. What then? And this is where it gets tough. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So there are two groups here that, that are being encouraged to preach the gospel more boldly from Paul's imprisonment. The, the first here that he talks about are those preaching out of envy and rivalry. So there were actually people who were proclaiming the same gospel. And that's important to keep in mind. They're still preaching Christ here, but their motives are terrible. Their motives are completely different. What they're seeking to do is to afflict Paul in his imprisonment even more. And we might ask, OK, how does that work? Why, how would that afflict him anymore. Well, if you think about it this way, Paul's in prison. And what these people outside of prison are thinking is that the guards are probably not on the best terms with him. So as they hear his message advancing, they see this gospel going forth that Christ has proclaimed. It's likely that that would encourage the guards to be a little more rough with him, to be upset with him, to be doing treating him not quite as nicely as they could. So he could have a very real physical affliction from that. But of course, as we've just talked about, little did they know outside of the church that these guards had been converted. These guards themselves had come to know Christ. And we see that the motives here for this group are jealousy and selfish gain. That's what the, uh, the text tells us. Uh, there's a second group here. Those preaching out of goodwill. And now, this is the group that saw Paul's ministry would be changed. I mean, they, they recognize he's going to be in prison. He's not going to be out and about as he was before. So in some ways, they could be thinking, we're going to pick up the slack a little bit here. And so they're working for the advance of the gospel. And it says in here, this is great. It says, Other, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here in the defense of the gospel. They recognize the purpose of it. And out of their love both for Paul and their love for Christ, they continue to proclaim the gospel. So there are two groups here preaching the gospel with radically different motives. And he ends that section with verse 18, which is kind of the tough verse. So we could ask, what are we to make of Paul's rejoicing here? Are we to think that the motives don't really matter? That as long as you're preaching Christ, it doesn't really matter what your motives are? Or maybe even worse there, that, uh, that envy and rivalry aren't the worst motives you could have for preaching the gospel? That it doesn't matter as long as Christ is proclaimed. And of course, he's not saying that. Our motives absolutely do matter in our preaching of the gospel. But his point is that he's not condoning the preaching of the gospel from false motives. And of course, we shouldn't either. But Christ is being proclaimed, and that is what matters. We could say it this way, that Paul's singular focus in life is Christ. It's to know Christ more. He says that later in the same chapter, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. 
And then he talks over and over then in chapter 3 about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That's his whole point for existence, we could say. So Paul is rejoicing that Christ is being proclaimed regardless of the motives here or in spite of their motives even. And I think this says something about the sovereignty of God in his accomplishing his purposes when his word goes forth. I think that can be an encouragement to us. Isaiah 55, 10, 11 says that God's word will always accomplish God's intended purpose, will not return void. So really, the Lord could very well have used these preachers with false motives in spite of themselves. Christ could be proclaimed, the gospel could advance in spite of their own skewed and terrible motives. So that the gospel even overrides those human motives here. Well, finally, what's the point? What has happened here? God has sovereignly placed Paul in prison that the gospel may go forth. We could say that Christ's authority to call sinners to himself is not hindered even by Paul's imprisonment here. And in fact, as we've seen, the opposite is true. The Lord Jesus used Paul's faithfulness in these adverse circumstances to advance his kingdom. And here's where where we come into play. What does this mean for us? Well, it means that you don't live in your neighborhood or in the apartment complex that you do by accident. It means that you don't go to the school that you go to by accident. It means that your place of employment did not come about just by some random chance event. God has sovereignly placed you in those places, in that neighborhood, in that school, in that place of employment, and He calls you to live faithfully in that place, whatever it may be, wherever it may be. So in that sense, our situation is really pretty similar to Paul's. And obviously, again, we're not apostles, and it's unlikely that we're ever going to end up in prison for our faith. But we are in the same place, and that God is calling each of us to live faithfully in the place in which He sovereignly called us. He has placed us there by His sovereignty for a reason and a purpose. So, the application is that we need to recognize and be aware of our surroundings. We need to recognize our sphere of influence. How are those people with whom we have regular contact going to be impacted by the way in which we would respond to just everyday situations? We don't know. We don't know how they'll respond. Uh, But we have this positive example here of what happened in Paul's life the way in which the Lord used his circumstances. So, what does it look like to live faithfully in the everyday circumstances of life? I've got a couple examples here. Of course, we could say much here. For all young people here, still in school, high school, on down, even college students, God has called you to be students in this stage of your life. So, what does it look like to be faithful as a student? Well, it means you're going to study to the glory of God. You can love your teachers by respecting their authority. You would love your parents and respect their authority in the same way. Loving your classmates, being real and genuine and honest with them, and not being exclusive in who you spend your time with. Just a few ways to think about 
what it would look like to be a faithful student. And a second example, for all in the working world, God has called you to live faithfully in that regard. Get to know your co-workers. Have them into your homes. Do your work with excellence. Model good and honest business practices. So, I mean, we could take these applications and, and place them anywhere in our lives. And these are just a couple examples. But really, we could, we could boil it down to one sentence here. Love those people around you. And, and on one level, then it's very simple when you put it that way. We're, just, we're to love people. We're to take a genuine interest in their lives. We're to spend time with them. We're to invite them into our homes. We're to have meaningful conversations with them. We're to share meals with them. Go to movies with them. Maybe at some point you invite them to church to worship with us. And what I hope this does uh, is to change our attitude and our approach towards evangelism. Kind of fleshing out a little bit about uh, of what Darwin has, has uh, preached the past three weeks. I would guess, I know this is the case for me, that just saying the word evangelism, it may make a lot of you uncomfortable. It may start with the, uh, the sweaty palms, maybe feelings of guilt for how poorly you've done it in the past, or maybe even thinking of the terribly awkward conversations that can take place when we're out trying to do evangelism. But really, that doesn't have to be the case. Evangelism is as simple as loving the people in our spheres of influence. That's all it is. Loving people in the place to which God has called us. Listen to this quote from Steve Malone. This is a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama. This is a paper he wrote that was originally titled Ministry in the Mundane, which is an excellent title. This is exactly what we're talking about here. It's ministry in the everyday, even mundane details of life. Here's what he says. The church has a ministry of presence, being present in people's lives, helping them see the graces of the gospel in all they are and do, being there when God works. When you think of it in that terms, in those terms, evangelism may, may lose some of, its, uh, some of the fear factor. It may not be so daunting. It may not be so intimidating when we just boil it down to something simple like that that we're to have a ministry of presence. We're to be in community with people. We're to be in relationship with people. We're, we're to build relationships and foster growth of those relationships in the places to which God has called us. So I, I'd say this too, that in a very real way, you don't have to go anywhere to do ministry. And don't hear me say that, that missions... And, and literally going places is not important. I mean, absolutely, we're called to do that. We're called to take the gospel to, uh, to all nations. But don't think that that's what it takes to do real ministry. You don't have to go anywhere to do this type of ministry. God, in His providence, has sovereignly placed you where you are. You're not there by accident. He's called you to live faithfully in whatever contact, context that is. He's called us to be salt and light to everyone with whom we interact in the everyday, mundane details of life. So, of course, in this, we, we should flee to Christ, flee to our Savior in faith, to trust Him that He will advance His kingdom. He will advance His gospel by these ordinary, simple means, these personal relationships 
that we all have with people and that we should be seeking out with people. And we can be confident, again, that His kingdom will not be stopped. His authority cannot be overthrown at all. He will have His way. Well, let's pray here that knowing Christ would be our singular focus, that it would drive us to live as Paul did, to be faithful in these little things, faithful in the calling that God has given to us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You have called us ambassadors. We're humbled by that. We know, Lord, that You, uh, you could have, of course, picked any way uh, that You so uh, chose to, uh, to advance Your kingdom, but You chose to do so through Your people. And we thank You for the, uh, the meaning and the purpose that that gives us, too. We thank You for, uh, for that task, for that calling. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to love our neighbors. We'd be faithful to love our co-workers. We'd be faithful to love our fellow students. And we would, we would seek out and develop relationships with those around us for the sake of Christ. And we pray, Lord, uh, that by Your Spirit, You would bless those efforts, that You would give us opportunity to proclaim Christ, not only in our actions, but, but even in words. We know, Lord, that You are the one who will ultimately change hearts. And again, we take comfort in that and we thank You for that, that it is not up to us to convert people, but it is up to us to live faithfully as You've called us to. So we pray by Your Spirit, help us to do that even this week. We thank You again for the, the Lord Jesus, the risen Christ, to whom we're now united. And we thank you for the life uh, that we have in him. It's for his sake, for his glory, and for our benefit that we pray. Amen.